This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Chances are you've run across cattle while exploring Colorado's public lands this summer. Most ranchers pay a fee to graze their cattle here, but in Nevada, one rancher has spent decades refusing to do this. In 2014, Cliven Bundy and his sons led an armed standoff against federal agents who were trying to impound his cattle. This week, jury selection got underway in Las Vegas in the case. Sadie Babbitts has been following this trial as part of her reporting as a journalist focused on public lands in the West. Sadie, welcome. It's great to be here. A lot of people will remember the Bundys from the takeover and occupation of the uh, the National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon last year. Yeah. Who, who's on trial in Nevada? Okay, you'll remember hearing Eamon and Ryan Bundy's names from the takeover of the refuge near Burns, Oregon. Eamon led those occupiers, and he and his brother were eventually arrested. They were later acquitted on felony charges. Now, Eamon and Ryan face very similar charges, along with their dad, Cliven Bundy. Cliven never participated in that takeover in Oregon. Uh, so the federal trial that's underway in Las Vegas deals with the 2014 standoff in Nevada. So it's a lot to keep straight. Right. <laughs> well, we're going to get into what led to this standoff in 2014. But first, how's jury selection going in Las Vegas? So jury selection finished yesterday. There are 12 jurors. There are four alternates. Jury selection actually started on Monday. and mm-hmm. We saw a pretty large jury pool. I know there were about 50 prospective jurors on Monday. And each day this week, similar number of people and they were winnowing the, the field down. The Bundy trial and jury selection was actually supposed to start in early October, but then there was that mass shooting in Las Vegas and right. the defense they asked for the trial to be postponed because they were pretty worried that it would be difficult to put together a jury that wouldn't be conflicted over firearms. And apparently they've they've been able to put together a jury now. So what did potential jurors get asked? Well, I wasn't in the courtroom for jury selection, but I'll, but I'll be there for opening arguments, which start next week. But I do know that potential jurors were given questionnaires that asked them about their feelings on guns, protests, uh, their thoughts on the October 1st shooting in Las Vegas. Now, after the, the first day of jury selection, election on Monday, nearly half of that original pool was gone. I see. Well, let's get back to 2014 here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in 2014, we're in Bunkerville, Nevada, about 80 miles from Las Vegas. And Cliven Bundy is taking a stand against the federal government. You know, he's had a very long history of refusing to pay grazing fees or get permits for his cattle on Bureau of Land Management lands. There's been a lot of litigation over the years to get Bundy to pay these fees or to remove his cattle. And Bundy has flat out refused. He's the last vestige of the real old time setting in the mud western ranchers. So this is Charles Wilkinson. He's a distinguished law professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and he's an expert on public land law. He says Cliven Bundy has a strong belief that most ranchers today just don't buy into. He believes that he has a right to graze and that the government has no right to require him to pay a fee or get a permit, and that he's, by God, not going not gonna to pay. Why does Bundy believe he's immune to federal regulations? Well, this is really interesting because Cliven Bundy has said all along that this stand against the federal government really isn't about grazing fees. This is about state sovereignty, who has access and control of public lands. For him, this is really about constitutional freedoms that he believes very strongly in. You know, the Bundy family says that their ancestors were some of the first Mormon settlers of Bunkerville, Nevada in 1877. Uh, This predates the Bureau of Land Management. And 
Cliven Bundy has said that before the federal government began management of these lands, the family had claims and they inherited the authority to graze their cattle on their lands. Now, I want to be really clear here. The federal government has authority to manage public lands, and this is something that the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld. And there's actually some really interesting Colorado history here. What is that? Okay, so you you could think of Colorado being sort of the birthplace of one of the most defining complaints over public grazing. Hmm. We're going all the way back now to the late 1800s, early 1900s. Theodore Roosevelt is president. He appoints Gifford Pinchot to lead the, lead the Forest Service, and he creates the first modern regulatory law on public lands so that if you're grazing on public lands, you need a permit. Now, this was a small fee for ranchers to pay, and they were not happy about this at all. And we see a, a rancher, a Colorado rancher by the name of Fred Light, who's been grazing in what's now the White River National Forest. And uh, CU Boulder law professor Charles Wilkinson does a great job of telling that story. So Fred Light decided that he was not going to comply. But Fred Light was a gentleman. And so he called up the forest supervisor and said, next Wednesday, I'm going to drive my cattle onto the national forest, just like I always have. And uh, if you want to try to stop me or arrest me or whatever, fine. Then let's go to court against each other. All right. So what happened? So Fred Light moved his cattle. The Forest Service gave him a ticket for failing to get a grazing permit, but it didn't end there. Um, This is what Wilkinson says. Fred Light went to court and had the whole state of Colorado behind him to the extent that Uh, the legislature paid Fred Light's attorney's fees to take the case to the Supreme Court. So in Light versus the U.S., the Supreme Court ruled that Fred Light did indeed um, have to get a permit and pay the grazing fees. And Fred Light said, "Okay," and he complied. Now, it's important to note that this Supreme Court case clearly establishes that the federal government has authority on public lands. Cliven Mundy has not followed Fred Light's approach, he though. Uh, he decided to take up arms against the government. Take us back to 2014 when the Bureau of Land Management decided to round up his cattle. Okay, so the BLM tells Bundy his cattle are going to be impounded. Bundy says publicly that he's, quote, ready to do battle with the BLM, that he intends to organize people to come to Nevada in what he called a range war with the BLM to protect his cattle and his property. Now, people from all over come to support the Bundys, including militia members, so-called patriots. These are people who believe strongly in the Constitution and individual liberty. And so on April 12, 2014, hundreds of people gather at this impoundment site in Nevada. So this is some YouTube video where you see people walking up to this locked gate with Bundy's cattle and the federal agents behind on the other side. Many people have firearms out. The BLM decides this is a pretty hostile situation. They negotiate a deal with the Bundys to release the cattle. No one is arrested and no shots were fired. But you can imagine tensions were pretty high. All right. Here we are two years later, and Cliven Bundy is just now going to trial with his sons, I might add. 
So that's right. This trial involves Cliven Bundy and his sons, Eamon and Ryan. It also includes Ryan Payne, one of the, of the Bundy supporters from Montana and a militiaman. They were all in the courtroom earlier this week dressed in their red jail garb as a display of solidarity. Uh, now this trial is actually one in a series of trials that have already happened. Um, some of the, the 18 co-defendants have uh, pled guilty to lesser charges or been acquitted. Um, and we should note this is a federal case. So now over the months, some of these people have been, um, yeah, they've been acquitted and uh, moving on with their lives. I see. What happens if Bundy is convicted? So he could be looking at many years behind bars. Um, he's now 71, I believe. And uh, he could be looking, for instance, at five years in prison just on the conspiracy charge, up to 20 years in prison on the assault on a federal law enforcement officer and interference with commerce by extortion charges. Another 10 years he could get for obstructing justice. And, the, and this list keeps going on. And he also could face some fines uh, that could be $250,000 per count. Why watch this case so closely? We know Bundy is is going to have some issues going through this, but what's the bigger picture here? You've invested quite a lot of time covering this. Well, I have because this is such a fascinating Western story. You know, this trial is the culmination of all of this drama and tension that boiled over in Bunkerville, Nevada. But it really truly is this Western story. And I think ultimately it comes down to a fundamental question that's been brewing for a while. And that's who should really have control and management over public lands. So remember, for Clive and Bundy, this standoff and his decades of refusing to pay grazing fees isn't about the fees for him. It's Mm. about this right to control public lands. And some states, we've seen like Nevada and Utah and Idaho, believe that they should um, be able to control control these lands. Cliven Bundy, for instance, has said he'd pay fees to the state or the county, but not the U.S. federal government. So here in Colorado, the governor has been pretty clear about public lands, that he would not like to go in that direction, and federal government is best equipped to, to manage these lands. The other thing I want to point out that's really interesting about this case is that there's some high stakes that stem around the standoff and the use of violence and intimidation that we saw in Nevada and also in Oregon. So let's say that the jury decides to acquit uh-huh. Cliven Bundy and, and maybe his sons, Eamon and Ryan, like they did in, in Oregon. There's a really big question here about how such a qu- an acquittal could be interpreted down the road. So would such a decision give people the okay to use firearms against the government if they don't like uh, regulation on public land? It's a big question and one we are likely going to have some more insight on over the next coming months. You know, this trial is expected to go at least four months. And you'll continue following it. I will. Sadie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. Sadie Babbitts is the former news director here at CPR News. She's now a Ted Scripps Environmental Journalism Fellow at the University of Colorado in Boulder, researching and reporting on tensions over public lands in the West. How would Metro Denver change if Amazon decides it's the right place to build a second headquarters? We don't have a crystal ball, but we do have Seattle. That's where Amazon began and grew fast. Our colleagues at KUOW Public Radio have put together a podcast series called Primed, What Happens When Amazon Comes to Your Town. And let's now hear the second episode. Do you remember the prom? Oh, God. <laughs> and, and how maybe there was one person that a whole lot of people wanted to ask out? <laughs> well, that's kind of what happened with Amazon's second headquarters. The bids are in, and 238 cities and regions submitted proposals. It's uh, similar to wanting to, to take the prettiest lady to the, to the dance. 
That's Jay Cheshire. He's the president of the Little Rock Regional Chamber. At first, he was excited about proposing to Amazon, but when he really thought about it, he realized he'd probably be rejected. The prettiest girl usually ends up with the dreamiest quarterback. We certainly, in this, in the case of this project, uh, would be at best the second-string quarterback. So instead, they made a breakup video. Hey, Amazon, we need to talk. It's not you, it's us. We wish you all the success in the world. Love, Little Rock. Love, Little Rock. Love, Little Rock. They broke up before they could even get started. But Seattle can't break up with Amazon. This isn't a prom date. This is a marriage. And things have been a little tense lately. It it used to be, you know, jobs, jobs, jobs. and, And it pretty quickly flipped to, what's up with all these cranes? It was really far along in that process of their growth that that all of a sudden everyone sort of woke up and said, oh my gosh, what's happening? And the rents are staggering, I would say, $4,400 for a two-bedroom. And it was amazing how quickly it flipped. I'm Joshua McNichols. And I'm Carolyn Adolph. This is Primed. What happens when Amazon comes to your town? This is the story of a relationship on the rocks. How Amazon went from being Seattle's knight in shining armor to an estranged spouse with a wandering eye. We'll try to figure out where things started to go wrong. And we'll meet some people who are living this story. That's all coming up next. So right after our first episode came out, this guy Dave Niekirk posted to the Primed Facebook page. He wanted to let us have it. He thought we were being way too negative, too unfair to Amazon. Niekirk actually used to be a vice president at Amazon in charge of hiring. He doesn't work for them now. But he got in touch because he wanted to remind us of how good things used to be between Amazon and Seattle. So we decided to talk to him. Niekirk started by telling us about the heady early days of this relationship, when Seattle was so happy to have this major employer in town. What we found when we would meet with people is, and we would tell them they were hired, it was not unusual for people to burst into tears. To understand why people reacted so strongly, we have to remember what it was like in 2008. Good evening. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. It was the Great Recession. Big banks were failing. Washington Mutual had been Seattle's largest employer. It disappeared overnight. By 2010, one in ten people didn't have jobs in Seattle. It seemed like no one was hiring. I remember that time I couldn't get radio work and I was sweeping up floors in a glass shop for just a little over minimum wage. I remember looking at Amazon job listings and just wondering if they could offer a way out. This whole town needed a white knight. And it turned out Amazon was the company that had the jobs to lift us out of the recession. Niekirk was in charge of hiring during the recession. And he was doing a lot of it. We were basically given a blank check to hire as many, uh, especially in the engineering field, talented engineers as we possibly could with no limit. And uh, I think at some point we actually ran out of laptops. (laughs) How does a tech company run out of laptops? Yeah, it's Amazon, right? Can't they just order some? (laughs) But the recession was 
this crazy opportunity for Amazon. I used to tell people that hiring engineering talent at this point in time is like finding gold bars. And you would, try, you would try to get as many of those as you can when you could because that long term is going to be a huge investment for the success of the company. All those new engineering hires earned a lot of money, some more than $100,000 a year. Those jobs helped Seattle recover from the recession before many other parts of the country. And meanwhile, Amazon outgrew its old headquarters building on Beacon Hill overlooking Seattle. It needed a whole new campus. Seattle wanted to keep it in the city, and so Seattle started giving Amazon things it needed to support all these new buildings. It wasn't asking for the moon. It wanted fresh infrastructure. But we did gussy things up a bit. We bought them a new trolley line that connected their neighborhood with downtown and an improved power grid. We spent about a billion dollars. And we did it because we thought it would be good for jobs and the future of the city. And we were probably half right. Because we did get a lot of jobs. Amazon now has 40,000 on the payroll and says it takes responsibility for another 53,000 jobs. Those jobs made even more jobs. Yeah, right. The multiplier effect, right? Exactly. So it was good for people who didn't work for tech companies, too. I met this guy, Carl Hackett. He sells furniture to techies, and he's doing okay. I love Amazon, frankly, because the impact of Amazon's presence in Seattle has meant that my business is thriving to a degree that it it did not and would not have um, if it were not for that impact. The truth of the matter is that I am in business now uh, because Amazon um, is in business in Seattle. So Seattle's investment kind of worked. We did some quick math. The city of Seattle grows by 57 people a day, and 28 people a day are hired by Amazon or a company that came here to be near Amazon. But we don't know if those 28 new hires come from here or if they come from far away. Amazon wouldn't say. Knowing that would tell us whether Amazon's making us rich or whether it's replacing us. So that's the story of how Seattle and Amazon ended up together. Amazon grew up here, we saw it around sometimes, then suddenly they were all grown up and rich, and they had something we really needed. That's when we threw ourselves at Amazon. That's when we invited Amazon into the center of our city. And that's when we started to realize what it's really like to be in a relationship with this company. Things were good between Seattle and Amazon for a long time. But then something changed along the way. Seattle stopped thinking Amazon was going to save it and started complaining about it. It's like the hot boyfriend with the motorcycle. You know, you're flying along and it's exciting, but then you're like, I'm riding on the back. I can't even see what's ahead. And suddenly this is too fast. This is not about me. And I just want to get off. (laughs) Seattle got to that point, too. Yeah, the memory of the pain of the recession was not terribly long. Mike McGinn was mayor when that collective realization hit. And it was amazing how quickly it flipped. It, it used to be, you know, jobs, 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 and, and it pretty quickly flipped to, what's up with all these cranes? The cranes showed how fast the city's growth was exploding. The people who were flooding into the city and the money they could spend on housing were starting to change the city for everyone else. I met Matt Stubbs outside his restaurant south of Seattle's downtown, He said the feeling crept up on him, and he said it felt like the entire city made the connection at once. I didn't hear it in civic discourse until all of a sudden it was the entirety of civic discourse. 
it was really far along in that process of their growth that, that all of a sudden everyone sort of woke up and said, oh my gosh, what's happening? Remember all those engineers making six-figure salaries? A lot of them came from elsewhere. A lot of people who already lived in Seattle didn't get those high-paying jobs. I mean, just to be fair to Amazon, they probably didn't have the skills. But this figure might surprise you. Half of Seattle makes less than $50,000 a year. That shows that trickle-down economics isn't trickling down. There's a lot of wealth floating around Seattle, but not everybody's sharing in it. Meanwhile, the cost of living in Seattle keeps going up. The University of Washington puts some numbers on that rising cost of living. They say that for a family of four to live in today's Seattle, it would cost $76,000 just for the basics, like a car and childcare and food. That's more than double what it was 10 years ago. A lot of people who do important work for the city can't afford to live here. Firefighters, teachers, retail clerks, half the people who work in Seattle don't live there. So think about this. When nurses are on call, they're supposed to be able to get to work within an hour. But a lot of them can't find homes in the city. And so they battle Seattle's ferocious traffic. You never really know when you're going to get to work. So the commute in really heaps on the stress. This is probably sounding really familiar to people living in places like San Francisco or New York or D.C. The core of the city is getting richer and parts of the edge are getting poorer. Remember that furniture store owner I met, Carl Hackett? He's African-American, and he's doing business in a neighborhood that is historically African-American. He is seeing homeowners being driven out. I literally was at a home three weeks ago talking to a lady. They can't afford to keep the house, even though it's been in the family for over 50 years. They have to sell. They can't afford to maintain the house and to keep the property taxes paid. And once those houses are on the market, the bidding wars are vicious. People are coming in with cash offers, way over asking price, and they're waiving inspections. And rents are astronomical. They're so beyond the pale. They're what people think of when they think of luxury items. Even at the Ferrari dealership, which is just up the hill from Amazon. I talked to a salesman there who sells cars that can cost up to $400,000. He didn't even look at them when we talked about the new wealth. But he seemed shocked by the rents just a few doors down. They do a lot of uh, Amazon people in that building, and the rents are staggering, I would say, $4,400 for a two-bedroom. All of this is really changing the city. People look around, and they don't recognize it anymore. I met Jim Parfit on Capitol Hill. He notices that as young, hip people move in, whole kinds of other people seem to disappear. In Seattle, there's almost no old people anywhere. Like, um, you know, I mean, there are on the fringes somewhere, but that's something I really notice. Like, they've all been vacuumed up or something. Leaving a city that people outside Seattle seem to think is cool. Forbes magazine says we're now the second coolest city in the U.S., aside from San Francisco, of course. San Francisco beat us on restaurants and museums, but Seattle has more microbreweries and coffee shops. But here's the kicker. One thing Forbes thinks makes a city cool is how many people are moving there. Oh, just sheer volume, which is funny because so many people in Seattle do not think that is cool. A local alternative paper here ruthlessly mocked that Forbes article. That kind of stuff really gets under Seattle's skin because while the number of microbreweries and the number of people moving in here might just be items on Forbes' ranking, this is our life. We're living through these changes. 
One of the people who is really living through this change is Deborah Bartlett. She's a middle-class worker who's managed to stay in Seattle despite it all. Actually, she lives right in the middle of Amazon's headquarters neighborhood, South Lake Union. The only reason she can afford it is because she's found a subsidized apartment. Well, I felt like I hit the jackpot. She's a teacher. She works part-time. Last year, she only earned $44,000 a year. And even though she lives in South Lake Union, she feels like an outsider there. She and her boyfriend went to one of the new restaurants where Amazon workers eat. Once. It's very expensive. And it would be our entire... We could not afford to go there every week. And if we went there once, it would be our entire dining budget for the month. Bartlett's budget's actually pretty tight. She visits the cash machine after payday each month. Okay, now I'm sorting all the money. And in the car, she stuffs her money into different envelopes to make sure she doesn't spend too much. So there's a grocery one and a dining one and an entertainment. And there's the allowance and laundry. This kind of tight budgeting is not what Seattle was hoping for when we got into this relationship. The bloom is off the rose at this point. Amazon brought a lot of jobs to the city and a lot of money, and they do not feel appreciated. They don't like being blamed for everything that's going wrong. We're citizens of this area, too, and so nobody gains through all these problems. We all want to find solutions that will work. They say they're trying to help find those solutions, which is kind of new for them. They're building a homeless shelter. They paid for one of the trolley cars. They've given money to our university. But this is not what people talk about when they talk about Amazon. Uh, When stories are told about the company, they're always looking for some negative angle about what the company is achieving. And one of the frustrating things is that we have, you know, you're going to find what you look for. Niekirk says we should think about Seattle's problems like Amazon would. We need to be creative. We need to think long term and focus on the customer. That's how we will get through the challenges that both the city and the state and the country, quite frankly, faces is through innovative and new ways of thinking and not just thinking about things from the past. So Seattle does not have the healthiest relationship with this company. We've just stopped hearing each other. Lately, it sounds kind of like a marital spat where Amazon is like, hey, I'm building a homeless shelter for you. What more do you want? Yeah, and Seattle's like, I don't want this homeless problem in the first place. You're so emotional. I can't even talk to you when you're like this. I'm going to go sleep in Denver or Austin or New York. You just go there and you think about how right I am. (laughs) I would never talk to my wife this way, by the way. Well, I probably would say that to my husband. It is clear that Seattle and Amazon are long past the early stage of the relationship. We've grown apart. But is that all Amazon's fault? We all know it takes two to screw up a relationship. And whose fault is it really that Seattle hasn't been able to keep up with all the growth that Amazon brought? That's what's coming up in our next episode of Primed. We're going to take a good, long look in the mirror. And it's not going to be pretty. I'm Joshua McNichols. I'm Carolyn Adolph. They're the host of Primed, What Happens When Amazon Comes to Your Town, from KUOW Public Radio. Just ahead, how two LSD labs in 1960s Denver revolutionized the psychedelic movement. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1968, Denver police busted an LSD lab in the basement of a home. It was actually one of two labs run by the same man, and his underground drug operation is said to have helped boost the global psychedelics movement. Westward journalist Chris Walker digs into this history in his latest cover story. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Before we get into the specifics of this Denver LSD operation, uh, we had talked a bit about how the drug was used in the 1950s. It was legal at the time, but was relatively unknown except by the U.S. intelligence community? It was legal, but in a very secretive capacity. So the U.S. intelligence community caught wind that the Soviets were producing mind-altering substances, including LSD. And so as part of the arms race... The U.S. government set up a contract with a company called the Eli Lilly Company to produce LSD and to conduct various experiments. But this was not available to citizens like you and me. In fact, it was very much under wraps. So your main source for this story is Tim Scully. Uh, He was behind the Denver operation. But prior to Denver, he lived in California's Bay Area and first tried LSD in April 1965. Uh, Scully told you trying LSD was a profound experience for him and left him with a mission. To try to save the world and that um, I was going to have to make some expedient decisions. I was going to have to break a few laws. I was going to have to do some things that weren't right in this higher cause. What was this higher cause? So I'm going to use Scully's words here. Okay. And what he wrote at one point was, quote, I saw the world as a place where most people lived lives of quiet desperation, working in jobs they hated to earn rewards that turned out to be tasteless and unsatisfying. Hypocrisy and hatred, double dealing and cheating seemed to be the way of life in the business world. Ecologically, the world was clearly headed for disaster. Our technological power to control and destroy our environment and fellow humans was increasing at an explosive rate. But our understanding of ourselves, our relationships to each other and to the universe around us was not. This was the gap I believe psychedelics could help close. So he really had a higher calling, I think, in this sense that he wanted to get to with LSD. Right. I mean, keep in mind at this time... You had the threat of nuclear annihilation. You had the Vietnam War escalating. And so Tim Scully had this visceral feeling of oneness with fellow man, with the universe. And he wanted to spread that feeling with the hope that we, he could stop war, that people would come together. And so that was his higher cause. Scully and his friend Don Douglas wanted to make LSD. They wanted to make this happen. And during the research, they met the sound engineer for The Grateful Dead. Uh, He was a legend in the LSD world. He agrees to take them under his wing, and he exposes them to something called acid tests. What were these tests? So Owsley Stanley, that's the name of the LSD chemist, uh, he was associated with The Grateful Dead, who in turn were associated with Ken Kesey, the um, the writer of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he was hanging around with a bunch of psychedelic evangelists known as the Merry Pranksters. And it was really the pranksters that were throwing these acid tests, which were these experiences where they would dose everyone on psychedelics and they'd create this heightened psychedelic sensation by having all sorts of light effects. They had speakers strung up around rooms with delay effects on them. And it was to see if they could come together under one common consciousness, which apparently did happen occasionally. But 
other times things went really weird. And, and can you talk a little bit about how maybe his views that this was altruistic kind of changed during these acid tests? So the pranksters were definitely testing the boundaries. They wanted to take things further and further, and that included dosing masses of unsuspecting people. And so in some of these acid tests, a famous one being the Watts acid test in February 1966 in Los Angeles, they set up, uh, they had these cans of of Kool-Aid where Owsley Stanley just poured liquid LSD into into the Kool-Aid and people came in right off the street. Admission was $1. And many of them took the Kool-Aid, not knowing that it was, quote-unquote, electric. It contained LSD. And if you're not ready for an LSD experience, it can be a very scary experience. And that changed his views, it sounds like, or at least made him realize this was something bigger, I think. It clarified his views. Uh I think he still saw the power of LSD as being a force of good in his mind. Uh, But he understood at that point that someone needed to be willing to take it. Someone needed to voluntarily take LSD. You couldn't just dose people without them knowing what was happening. Eventually, Scully and his friend got to work in one of their mentors' California labs, and Scully learned it was impossible not to get high while making LSD. And what happens is that you rapidly build up a tolerance. Uh, you're not hallucinating violently. You know, you, you're not even that aware that you're in an altered state unless you talk to somebody who isn't in the lab. Then in October of 1966, California becomes the first state to make LSD illegal. Uh, Scully and his co-workers were constantly being trailed by federal agents. He he felt like he had the information he needed to start his own lab. So they began to look outside of California. Why did they decide on coming to Denver? So at first, they were thinking of setting up a lab in a very rural location in, say, Wyoming or Idaho. And that's actually those are the first states that they road trip through. Because it was secretive, kind of out of the way? Type of thing? Exactly. Um, but they realized that, one, they stuck out like sore thumbs because... Tim had long hair and looked like a hippie, and that didn't go over so well with some of the uh, cowboy communities in in Wyoming. Um, the, The other is that they needed dry ice, and so they realized that they could only get that in large cities, and that was to run some of the chemical processes in the lab. And so they set their sights on Denver, and and while Denver did have a growing young vagabond population, uh, a bohemian community down in what's today lower downtown, um, they were actually looking to stay away from that. And so they were drawn towards the leafy, safe, uh, sort of um, family-oriented neighborhoods around City Park. So that's where they set up these labs. And that's where they set up their first lab. When did things start to kind of unravel for them in Denver? So they were discovered in Denver because of a, a very unlikely... Uh, mistake that they made. So in their second lab that they were running in in 1967, um, or sorry, 1968, rather, uh, they they traveled. Tim Scully was making trips to Europe to obtain chemicals to make LSD because the chemicals were increasingly difficult to obtain in the United States. Um, His lab assistants noticed that the water was not working on the perimeter of the property. A a pump had broken inside a well on the property. And so 
rather than fix it, they left and decided to kill time in California while Scully was in Europe. And what what ended up happening is that the lawn died because this was during the summer um, because no one was watering the lawn. And no one like was that. watering the lawn. And so the, the landowner um, actually drove by and noticed that the lawn was dying and was wondering what's going on. Why aren't my tenants taking care of the yard as is stipulated in our rental agreement? Um, and so he noticed a strange smell wafting out of the back of the house, and he believed it to be a dead body. And but it was the chemicals in the LSD process. It was it? a spilled chemical. I see. Yeah. So they, they eventually were arrested in this situation. They avoided state convictions with their case, but it went all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, it ruled police conducted an illegal search of their lab and failed to get a warrant. But he was indicted by a federal grand jury in 1973. So it's obvious that these labs didn't operate for long. Uh, how no. then did they impact the global psychedelics movement? These are two labs in Denver. It seems that others were doing the same thing. Why are, why are these different? Part of it was the purity of the LSD that Scully was creating. Um, and actually, Stanley helped him run the first lab in 1967. Uh, and they were short-lived, that's correct, but they... The first lab in particular produced a lot of LSD, over a million doses of, of LSD. Um, and it helped fuel the, the psychedelic revolution because this was the highest quality acid available. Um, and this was a, also a time where it was less associated with harder street drugs. And so there was more of a separate movement around psychedelics not necessarily being a party drug at the time, but but having more of this higher cause associated with it. When you interviewed Scully, did he express any remorse about his time making psychedelic drugs? He did. He did. Um, he feels very conflicted about it. Uh, in the time since he was convicted, served time in prison and got out, um, he's heard from plenty of people who had bad experiences on acid and have never been the same. Uh, he was even sued by the father of um, of a young man who killed himself and wrote in his suicide note that L- his bad LSD experience was part of the reason why he killed himself. Um, that case did not go forward with Scully because it couldn't be proven that it was Scully's acid. But he understood that there were definite impacts from from what he was doing and how he pushed LSD forward. Absolutely. Um, and his, his other regret is there, there's some debate out there about there being potential positive effects of LSD on certain, um, certain conditions like autism or PTSD. Uh, and the fact that this became an illegal and distributed drug means he thinks that he set back the research 40 years or more. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Westward journalist Chris Walker, his latest cover story is Acid Trip, Denver's secret LSD labs fueled the psychedelic revolution. A piano has 88 keys, but pianist Andrew Lee is known for playing just a few of them over long stretches of time. He specializes in music by minimalist composers. These are pieces built on space and repetition. On his latest album, he plays just seven of the piano's keys for more than three and a half hours. 
If that sounds like a stunt, he's actually won rave reviews from classical critics and traveled the world performing this music. Lee teaches at Regis University in Denver, and he joins us now. Andy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. What do you want people to feel when they listen to this music? I want them to enter into a different sort of experience. You know, this isn't sort of um, uh, the type of music that's going to push and pull you and be dramatic, but it's something that allows you to move into a different space, into a different temporal reference, and to, yeah, just experience something quite different and really removed from the everyday experience. So going inside yourself or outside yourself, or is it up to the listener to kind of figure out where to go? Yeah, it's definitely up to the listener. Uh, it, it, it's been likened to to looking at a statue in some ways, so there's no necessarily right way to do it uh, or to say, well, you didn't see it because you didn't look around at the back or whatever. Um, it, it's much more, the impetus is much more on the listener to enter into and find their way into the piece. There's so much repetition in the music we just heard. How do you keep track of where you you are when you perform this music? Is is there a score that you write out for this? So this particular piece is actually just a text-based score. So I just have a written sort of list of instructions. I worked with the like composer. It says play here or play this note here. Uh, or what? Not, not quite that. Uh, much more sort of general. I worked with the composer Randy Gibson quite a bit in the development of the piece. And this one has a lot of improvisatory elements to it. So I'm using a stopwatch to sort of keep track of different sections and and I have some some notes about what the electronics are going to be doing coming up you know different things I can try out in this section but yeah it's it's very it's yeah very improvisatory in that way it, because you do manipulate the music as well with electronics and things mm-hmm. like that we'll get to that in just a few sure. moments what was it like to get the first copy of this and, and figure out how to play it um, well I I think if it, if that was the case, like if I was just handed a score, I might have freaked out a little bit. Um, <laughs> thankfully, uh, Randy Gibson has uh, family out here in Denver. He's based in Brooklyn. So he, he would come out with some regularity and we would we would just try out things together. He would try out, you know, uh, different patches with the electronics. We'd experiment with different ways to improvise. So it never uh, yeah, at no point was I ever just handed a, an object. This piece, appropriately enough, has a massive title. It's uh, called The Four Pillars Appearing from the Equal D Under Resonating Apparitions of the Eternal Process in the Midwinter Starfield, 16810, Kansas City. What does that mean? <laughs> well, a, a few different things. Um, I don't want to take up all of our time with it. <laughs> uh, so uh, the most basic elements. So the four pillars uh, refers to a tuning structure that Randy Gibson has developed as a composer that really sort of uh, encapsulates his sound. And when he and then when you have uh, the four pil- pillars appearing from the equal D, referring to that, I'm just playing the D's on the piano. Yeah. I want to hear a little from one of the earlier sections of the piece. We're just an hour and 15 minutes into you playing a piece we'll call The Four Pillars for short. That's only seven notes, but but there's a lot happening here, isn't there? Yeah. So uh, there, the the sound from the piano is being processed live. Um, everything's being fed through a laptop, and Randy has a program that he's using to to manipulate the sound. Um, the the easiest description I can give you is that 
Um, when I strike one note of the piano or any instrument, the sound is really complex. It's not just this single tone. And so what Randy does is he he filters and amplifies and processes, you know, some of that complexity to bring it more to the forefront. Um, and this is done live as you're playing it. Yes, yes. Now, if you play this piece again, will it sound exactly the same? Not at all. Well, I sh- well, maybe not at all, but it's certainly a very different experience. Uh, for the recording of the piece, we did three takes over three days, um, and each one felt quite different from the others. And in fact, with the electronics processing, there are some chance or random elements to it as well. So I never know exactly what I'm going to be getting uh, with the with the electronics. And so the way I interact with that and the way I interpret the piece and the way a different piano sounds, all these things things really affect sort of the if the experience of the work. There is, uh, uh, it's not just hours of quiet playing. There is a dense, noisy section that lasts for 40 minutes. Here that is. playing there, but there's different, different tones and oh, things yeah. playing through mm-hmm. that. Uh, do you ever get a multiple pass at this? Because this is live. Do you ever be like, okay, that's not going to work. Let's, let's try this again and, and, and try this a different way. No, no. <laughs> Definitely don't get multiple passes. Um, Could you make a mistake? Uh, well, I, I actually cheat a little bit. Um, since I am only playing the Ds, I, I manipulate the instrument a little bit so that if I do accidentally strike a C or an E, um, nothing happens. So so technically in that way, I don't strike a wrong note. I see. What do you feel when you, you play this music? It's, it's, a, it's a number of different things because on one hand, I'm entering into the experience. Um, but at the same time, I have to keep sort of an objective distance as a performer from that experience. Um, you know, and so I'm, I'm also sort of, especially with this piece, because it's so physical, um, you know, I'm just keeping track of my body. If there's any tension in my shoulders or my elbow or anything like that, I'm paying attention to the room and seeing, you know, how people tend or how I perceive people entering into the experience, um, working with the piano, you know, all, all these different elements take Taking into it, but uh, you know, at the whole, I'm just trying to create and enjoy to an extent uh, an experience for the audience. Now, does it surprise you that you're getting so much praise for your work from the New York Times and, and the New Yorker? Yes, <laughs> um, and it's always been sort of um, what I would consider my more off the wall odder projects that seem to get uh, the most uh, press or the most sort of recognition. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to make that my interests um, have been picked up by these reviewers, and yeah, I, I feel extremely fortunate that, yeah. Yes, that my artistic <laughs> endeavors have been appreciated by others. Andrew, thanks so much for being here. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Andrew Lee teaches at Regis University in Denver and travels the globe playing music by minimalist composers. You can hear more of his latest release and see a performance from one of his concerts at CPR.org. And that's our show for today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. <laughs>